Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 19. fire broke out on the second day, or nearly did. I smelled smoke coming from an electrical relay and shut it off manually. There must have been redundant circuitry in place because nothing seemed to power down. My companion had stocked the ship with food and supplies. I was able to get him to swallow some water, unconsciously it looked like, but food just sat in his mouth unchewed. I cleaned it out as best as possible and figured he'd just have to wait. We both would. Our intended destination was a complete unknown, but it was pretty clear from the warning flags that popped up on the nav display that the coordinates for the ship's exit cone had become corrupted. All the screens were locked, showing nothing but status updates and those warnings. Possibly, the displays were all slave to the cyborg's internal systems. I couldn't run any diagnostics and didn't trust my hacking skills or the situation as a whole well enough to try a workaround. Without any way of controlling the state of the jump, we could come out anywhere or any when. The theories about extra-dimensional star jump dynamics were so varied at least those a layman like myself could understand, that any outcome now seemed possible. A real jump technician, engineer, or scientist might have been able to pinpoint the ship's status, but the only person aboard with any of those skills wasn't talking. The whole thing would have been horribly fretsome, but mostly unproblematical, if my companion hadn't evacuated his bowels on day three which I only figured out because of the smell. Again, it seemed entirely involuntary, and I wasn't about to let him sit there in it. The fewer details I relate about that particular operation, the better, but suffice it to say that getting him cleaned up without unplugging him was only possible because we were in zero gravity. You might imagine that it would have been easy to gloat over his presumably insensible form, or to hate him, or to simply ignore him there. But some part of the man, either biological or electronic, or even perhaps some combination of the two, was flying this vessel. That made him a source of hope. I hoped he would hold out. I hoped we were going somewhere we could find help. And I hoped that place was not where he had intended to go, because any help the ship might find there 
was hardly likely to extend to me. The guy with the hat was back. No mistaking it. It turned out he lived down the street from me and worked mid-shift over in life support. Very bright in there, apparently, hence the hat. I got into a conversation with him one day on the tram. Nice guy. My hackle still went up each time I saw him. They went up when I saw a lot of people. Barney must have thought me high-strung and hard-drinking, and maybe he was right. Layton and I spent occasional nights together, but we argued a lot, too. Not loudly, rather in that same subdued, oblique manner that made me unsure if we were, in fact, arguing, or even communicating at all. I mentioned her lip makeup once, and she agreed with my assessment, yet still made it clear I was wrong to bring it up. Much of what I did was wrong. The gang had noticed all the time we were spending in each other's company, and I was uncomfortably quizzed one night. It's not serious, I stated, sharing some scobble with Barney and Alaki. They made doubting noises. Even Barney looked unconvinced, and we had talked about it just that morning when I dashed back to the apartment before work to shower and change. Well, why not? Fanny demanded. She was recently divorced, just before arriving on Mylag Vernier, in fact, and all things relationship were held by her in equal parts reverence and disdain. I don't know, I replied, quite flustered. It's the wrong time right now. I'm focused on my career. You must have at least thought about it, she pursued. In the abstract, maybe. Your relationships are abstract constructions? Lily demanded wickedly. I should have seen that coming. She had a philosophy degree to go with her master's in fluid electronics. This we have to hear. Expound! Enlighten us as to the real or existential challenges of your love life, Ejok. Go ahead and laugh, I said weakly. Skewing the paradigm of your life is no small consideration. Changing out priorities is always risky. <laughs> what kind of risk? Tip guffawed. They all did. Expound, my boy, Fanny added. Give us the risk analysis. She had settled back in her chair and spoke with a sharp, stabby, hand-flourish and vocal intonation the group seemed to see as comical affectations of mine. It broke up the table again. I smiled and nodded and held up my hands in defeat, which was the only appropriate response. That made me a good sport, one of the gang. Except that I wasn't, and this was invasive, and I had no doubt then or now that they all knew it and enjoyed watching me squirm. There was a sudden and very tangible taste of alienation in my mouth that made the scobble unappealing. Turning down their tacit invitation to join the team had cost me something I didn't know I'd had. It wasn't anything childish or petty that they did, not even this, really. It was the unspoken consensus that I didn't, after all, have much in common with such a close group of friends. Barney's weird, assigned roommate, and nothing more. He's a busy man, Layden injected with mock gravity as she passed by with a tray of drinks for another table. That was a good one. I laughed with them all. Maybe hardest of all.
After I left, I took a walk. I bought a coffee at the kiosk and drank it quietly, sitting at one of the tables. I etched a note into a piece of packaging fished from the trash receptacle, using a spork I'd palmed from the pub. I dropped the piece inside that cup and trotted over to set it in that dark little nook. Then I walked home and went to bed early for a change. Around 2300, Layden called on my ring. I was in bed, but still awake. Swinging by? Not tonight. You aren't mad about before, are you? She sounded shocked and looked it too in my eye view. It wasn't easy, but I'd figured out how to integrate the cheap device into my personal comm network. No, just tired. Early day tomorrow. My idiotically short responses were noticed, but she didn't seem willing to get into it just then. Or maybe ever. And maybe I didn't care. She saw that too. You are one incredible piece of work, Ejac de Santos, she pronounced bitterly and closed the line. Barney came in from practice soon after this, but I just lay there, listening to him shower, then settle in. Finally, I fell asleep. Two hours later, I got a text message that flashed in my eyes until I woke up enough to read it. All green. I deleted it, rolled over, and dropped off once more. The fallout from Quan being caught never blew back on me or anyone else that I heard about. It seems he was netted during the rehiring round and simply let go. We'd never spoken while in R&D, never even saw each other, actually, and had barely spoken back in Specsign. I felt more isolated than ever, though, and twice as much once team had cleared out all the previous hardware and equipment. Word came down, after a day or two, about what the newly christened Weaponry sub-D would now be responsible for. I looked over some specs projected from Gaza's Wobbly Tri-D. She'd been able to patch it up somewhat. It sat on a card table she was using as a desk. Her new office would be ready by the end of the week, she was assured. Several more standing partitions closed us in now, way back there in our little staked-out spot in R&D General. A drop cloth had been hung between two of these to stand in for a door. Six other people had been added to our ranks, all of them team officers, all of them young, and all with other duties until we were up and running for real. Another thing we were assured would be happening soon. Why does team want this? I asked about the specifications, utterly confused. Show me the integration plans. De-Anthony, she stated, a slight touch of exasperation in her voice. It says right there, I emphasized, pointing to a spot in the hologram that rippled around my finger. Reference, cross-capacity design 1.0. That's got to be in the library, right? No, it's just a placeholder. We're supposed to come up with all the integration stuff. I blinked at that. 
Is that a joke? It's fresh off the drawing board. How are we supposed to know any of that stuff yet? It's terra incognita. This is why onboard defense was restructured into weaponry and expanded. They want military-class weapons controlled by a civilian-style interface. I don't know why that's important to them, but we have to define the thing's parameters ourselves. Their thinking will have to be made clear, but they obviously intend the ship to be crewed by civilians, at least sometimes. It's not that simple, I replied, shaking my head. If the project requirements remained unchanged, then the challenge here was a mighty one. Hardware issues aside, just putting together a control surface that a civilian gunner like myself would find familiar and usable, yet which could, nonetheless, monitor, control, and fire the kind of military weaponry found on modern fighter craft would be like, well, like nothing I'd ever heard of. There was no precedent, which meant we'd be far more mired in hit-and-miss research than in actual engineering. There was no way this was going to happen in lockstep with the other sub-Ds or their timetables. If it was simple, she countered, someone would have done it by now. Every usability study I've ever read has concluded that the four major civilian gunnery interfaces available on the market all have lower embedded learning curves and higher degrees of flexibility than their military counterparts, when in fact any kind of counterpart even exists. New civvy weapon systems that hit the catalogs have control formats that usually follow one of the standards, allowing OEMs to integrate them into their new products with speed and relatively few incompatibilities. <laughs> oh, I could argue that, I laughed. Only because you aren't a team gunnery officer, or a fleet one in your case. In the military, every new weapon gets a new interface. It's always been like that. Sure, in the short term, it allows the manufacturer to charge for complete packages, thereby increasing profits. But in the long term, it causes budgetary overruns and stagnation in upgrades because team can't afford to swap out entire weapon systems willy-nilly just to get the latest version of things. It's a real problem. They have the same issues in the Alliance, I replied, nodding. And even worse ones in the Empire. Those guilds over there resist any sort of standardizations, afraid it'll cost jobs or market share. And don't even get me started on the papals. From what I've heard, being a gunner on a church spaceship represents job security for life, whether civilian or flotilla. Every weapon system is scratch-built and therefore completely different to identically rated ones on identical ships. Quality people are irreplaceable over there. I know. This move is the first attempt by any military body to try and make a truly universal standard. It may not work, but it's a worthy goal. If they succeed, I countered, angry suddenly, not a single civilian gunner I know will be able to find work. I mean, who would hire someone like me when they can get a retired military officer with deep action combat experience? Right now, civilian and military are like apples and oranges. If our part of this project succeeds, we'll be making a system anyone can learn to use. Forget the free jump tech, forget the new power plant. That alone could impact economies. Free jump? The new star drive, you mean? My heart skipped a beat. That had been Shady Lady's private little term. 
I'd been careful not to use it before so as to avoid confusion or sounding confused or, worse, sounding sure of myself. I didn't respond. I like it, she concluded, then said it again a few times. They're looking for new terminology right now, and Hull Design put forward the word Gravmotor, which stinks on every level. I'll submit free jump, if it's okay. I'll give you credit. I just smiled. I'm thinking about a change, I said evenly. Oh, no, 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 don't tell me you want out, she moaned, looking instantly crestfallen. You can't leave me here with Jacob and all these buzz cuts. I'll lose my mind. Brandon Erzga would have been losing his mind if he could have seen me then. Chris Giordano, too. Getting in on the new ground floor of R&D was a golden opportunity for an undercover agent. But that was exactly the problem. If Team was cleaning house... Just how many pieces of the incompetence puzzle that was Jaybird's destruction were going to be left for me to find? This was looking more impossible than ever. The surreptitious aspects were nipping at my heels as well. Spy guy coffee codes, chubby hat guys shadowing me. Brandon and Christmas could go stark raving mad for all I cared. This secrecy gaz, all these team kids... But you just got here. Yeah, I know. Better to walk out before you come to count on me. Look, I know we haven't really gotten anything done yet, but you and I have had some very productive conversations. I've passed on several of your observations to Florine, a Seven Nuellen. She's really happy you're here. She didn't look happy to me, I replied flippantly. Who could with Team Brass breathing down her neck? Come on, give us a shot. The project has to be compelling to you. Of course it is, I confessed. Very much so. But this new direction they're going in? A free jump fighter? I'm a civilian spacer. I was hoping to someday serve on a cargo vessel with one of these engines. Now it's looking like a military monopoly. Just like always. It's a national security issue, Ejok. You have to see that. Oh, I do. If the first ships that corporate rolls out are military ones, the galaxy will jump into an arms race, every nation compensating for being outpaced on this front by building up their other assets of war. If corporate produced merchant vessels, though, we'd see an economic boom, with every company treading back lining up to license the tech. Nutty, paranoiac spending versus incredible revenue? That's the kind of thinking you'd expect from some syphilitic warlord over in noble space. You talk like you're reading tea leaves, she countered, shaking her head. Of course Team wants to see what the Miltech potential is. It's what they do. But who's to say this is the only plan in the works? Other branches of the corporation might well be drawing up designs for your free-jump cargo ships as we speak. If it seems like a profitable idea, you can bet someone is looking into it. I opened my mouth to argue back, but I couldn't. She was right. That was something corporate could easily do, and the more I thought about it, the more likely it seemed. I'll stick it out for a while, I announced after a bit. She smiled, looking relieved, which I genuinely appreciated. 
I took a pass on the pub that night. Too much drama, too many distractions. Instead, I took a walk, deciding to do a complete circumnavigation of the space station. That was a touristy thing to do, but this was hardly a tourist town, so I wasn't self-conscious about it. I hadn't spoken with Dieter for a couple of days, so I called him on my comm ring while strolling along. He had been sleeping, and I felt guilty waking him up. No, no, it's okay, he responded to my apology. I've been meaning to chat. Our whaling ship parts have been ordered. They have a low priority, so it's going to take a while. Where are you? Um, just passing that discount clothiers on Centerline? I'm gonna ring this place tonight. Sounds like you have a lot on your mind. Well, shouldn't I? He just humphed. I talked to our friends, he supplied. They put Mavis back in the freeze. Otherwise, no updates to report on her condition. They aren't holding up well, are they? I mean, no one would, even if they didn't have guilty consciences. Are we really sure about that part? We aren't sure about anything, except that we're not alone in having, uh, hobbies aboard this station. The encrypted signal? Is there news? All I can say is that steps are being taken on that front. Don't ask. Look, I'll let you get back to sleep. I just wanted to check in. He said he was happy that I did, pressed me to enjoy my walk, and closed the call. I found a couple of new fruit stands at one point, all in a row. Beautiful apples and citrus fruits, vegetables and fresh herbs. It was a surprise, even a joy to see. I was tempted to buy up armloads of the stuff. But I really wasn't a cook and rarely home anyway, so it would probably just go bad. It was all very expensive, too, since there weren't any hydroponic gardens on station that I knew of. I came to a relatively large gadget outlet after this. It had all sorts of electronic doodads and devices. I might have replaced my wrist comp right away after the mugging if I had known about it. It was tempting to pick one up, in fact but I was really in a looking mood more than a buying one. I came across a tiny Thali restaurant, the sign for which was in some unreadable Terran language, and I suddenly realized I was famished. I was one of several customers and enjoyed a preset meal of curried chickpeas, a type of flatbread I couldn't name but greatly enjoyed, spicy greens, some amazing potatoes, and a dollop of cardamom-laced custard. Very sweet and very good. It was all served on a single battered metal tray, and I washed it down with ice-cold water from an equally battered cup. If I'd discovered the place sooner, I'd have been eating less scobble, I can tell you. Eventually coming upon more familiar territory, I stopped at my little coffee kiosk. I sipped slowly as I walked, without any thought of the nook or secret messages, and I didn't want to look over my shoulder. It was nice to be solitary and wandering. No, this wasn't really outer space, to a spacer anyway, but it was movement and discovery, however small and circular. 
It was a scent of freedom, dancing through fumes of obligation. It was an evening of no one, not even me. This place was very nice. The Mylag line included other such vessels as this, only outfitted for colonial use, true residential stations. I liked the layout and simplicity. I liked how it was constructed, with an open, airy feel through some clever counter-bracing of the support struts, rounded bulkhead corners, and the liberal use of tensegric cabling instead of load-bearing girders wherever possible. It made the place quite livable, even pleasant. Granted, it did still have a strong utilitarian feel, with offices, labs, and security posts galore. But there were also shops and restaurants, apartments, and some decent tract housing for the management types. And this was all just on Centerline Avenue. There were two narrower roads that paralleled it, Port and Starboard Streets. Not much imagination in the names, maybe, but it was hard to get lost. And in between the roads were alleys and small lanes, with more shops, more offices, more apartments. The station was a massive product, built and tailored to a customer's exact needs. One settlement among many. Tens of thousands in space, housing billions of colonists. And an unknown number of clandestine operations like this one. Mylag Vernier was a speck of dust that I was occupying for a millisecond. One moment in my life. That was good to remember. I stopped and took deep breaths of reclaimed air and a sip of coffee made from reclaimed water. This mission was just temporary, like an inhalation, like a taste of creamy bitterness in the mouth. What I was doing was important. It mattered. But only for now. That perspective made me smile. Standing alone, I grinned like a fool. But it was genuine and filled with relief. I watched the pedestrian traffic go by. Even though it was nearly third shift, many projects were staggered in such a way to keep them running all day and night, especially since those were artificial concepts here. And some support services were scheduled the same way. This meant people were as numerous right now as they ever were, especially in the middle of a shift as it was, which would have counted as lunchtime. A tram trundled by... Small rollers with one or two people cruised along. A tick-tick cab buzzed past. Folks dashed out to grab a bite or to run errands while they had a chance. Assistants and line workers. Clean room techs in full garb. Team Johnnies looking rushed. They sailed along ahead, behind and beside me. Focused or chatting or laughing or grim. A regular shift. It was because I was actively watching all this that I saw the roller approaching. It was a bright yellow cherry moor one-seater, open to the air and fully autonomous, one of hundreds leased by the corporation for the duration of the project. A purely mundane vehicle 
unremarkable in every way. A bulky figure in a radiation technician suit, just fabric in folds, was leaning half in, half out as the vehicle approached. The face was covered in a reflective shield like they always wear when on the job. Something was in the figure's gloved hand. I tossed my coffee at the car and ducked at the same moment, going to one knee, while a sizzling snap barked from the figure's stunner. The cup had missed my target entirely, sailing right through the Cherry Moore's cab, but it had made the attacker duck or flinch or something, and the shot had not found me. The roller was only moving at jogging pace, so the rad tech unfolded from it and hopped out, stumbling a bit, tiny weapon still clenched in a black-gloved fist. Someone behind me shouted or screamed, having witnessed what happened, what was still happening. I tried to get up and run in a single movement and only succeeded in tripping and going down on my stomach. There were running sounds, more shouts, more shots, but I still wasn't hit for whatever reason, so I got up and ran. I didn't look back, I didn't look at the people gawking, I didn't slacken my pace until I was winded, which didn't take long, but it put me a few dozen meters away. I ducked into the next alley I came to and stumbled over to Starboard Street. Then I went right and kept walking. When the public tram rolled up behind, I signaled for it and got on. A text came in from Seven Erzga, superimposed upon my eye view. You okay? I whispered into my fist, barely above a breath, but the ring picked up the words, converting them to text and sending them off in reply. Yeah. Get him? No. He had another roller waiting. Dropped his gun. A ramp up. That stopped all thought. A flash of panic galloped through me, a delayed reaction from the attack. He wanted to kill me? Trained technicians in backroom workshops, or even just home tinkerers with an aggressive streak, could modify the circuitry and power supply of even a cheapo one-shot stunner to create a very lethal weapon indeed. Granted, the range was limited, and active use often burned out components or overloaded them, causing fires and burst batteries. But they could be both effective and hard to trace. Gang members, random criminals, and people with grudges had all been known to use ramp-ups, as did professional killers sometimes. Seems so. Go straight home. Check with your accountant in the morning. Understood. And thanks. Weirdly, I was able to sleep well for the first time in days, even weeks. Intellectually, I knew that the would-be killer was still out there. For now, though, this one night, I felt safe. The attacker was likely to go to ground for a while after failing and being chased by Brandon. That seemed like a pleasant thought, and I indulged in it until my eyes slowly closed. I didn't even hear Barney come in, and was happy for the wake-up flash of my retinal's early first shift, because I surely would have slept through any audible alarms. I was feeling refreshed, 
alive, far less heavy and bleak than of late. It lasted while I showered and dressed. It lasted while I took the tram over to the coffee kiosk. I grabbed a black jazz tea, which was a popular gen mod with lots of caffeine, and a cheese knish. Knishes were a common snack food in Jardin, back home. This one was very different to those, but good, too. My mood held. It lasted while I took the tram over to the accounting place with the nook nearby. There was a coffee sitting there, empty. I fished out a small plastic optic sheet and unrolled it right there. My retinals could pick out an infrared overlay on the display, which would have been invisible to the naked eye. Since Specsign had access to my official records, Brandon would know that. On the sheet was a description of what the Seven had learned overnight. The shooter's identity was still unknown. The second roller had been unexpected, and Brand took responsibility for the oversight. Team apparently knew about a disturbance that had occurred, but not any details. They were investigating, though, so it might not be long before they somehow ID'd me. I should be prepared. Security sensors in the area had been put out of action prior to the incident, just like they had with the mugging. And that was it. The final line on the sheet instructed me to make sure to recycle it, which I did at the first trash mulcher I came to on the street corner. I still felt good. The information that the killer had technical skills enough to modify a stunner and disconnect a localized sensor grid, as well as the possibility of him having allies aboard, completely failed to dampen my mood. It lasted right up until I got to work. Probably double the number of team security characters were in there now, walking around, standing around, checking people's bags and data pads. They stopped me and inspected my knish and tea suspiciously, but no more suspiciously than they did everyone and everything else. Gaza and several of the military types on the weaponry sub-D were already in our makeshift office in the back corner. Seven Newellen was with her. They both offered greetings. The Sevens was clipped and distracted. She looked very anxious, actually, in stark contrast to the icy composure she displayed in that weird interview. I... I have to go, she said after a moment. Excuse me. She moved off quickly, with fast little steps. What's going on around here? I asked Gaz after Floyeen was out of earshot. Looks like there was a data breach, my supervisor said quietly. It happened over with the Star Jump team. Some restricted files were copied, maybe from inside, maybe from outside. That's all they're saying right now, but team will be doing a full soup-to-nuts audit of each sub-department. Floyeen is really upset about it. I thought she was going to have a stroke. Looks like design and construction duties are on hold until the investigation is over. The team engineers slash officers in our group stood around the table. I'd been introduced to them over the course of the previous week and couldn't remember a single name. 
They all looked resigned and unemotional in that distinctively military way when something big, pressing, and unavoidable was going down that was sure to be a royal pain for everyone involved. This is ridiculous, I stated at last. Gaza started to respond, emotion written plainly on her face. No, you know I'm right, Gaz. I've been in R&D for weeks now. I have yet to see any work being done. The free jump technology is amazing and its potential is nearly unlimited, but this project right here is a joke. It's just bad timing, Ejog. We'll get back up to speed soon. Today even, look at this. And she waved at the Tri-D. It popped up a schematic hologram that floated off to one side, and she had to physically turn the half-broken unit so the image was over the table. It was a circuit plan. Is this for the interface? I asked. The others just nodded and studied it closely. I put it together yesterday and last night. It's for the particle cannon response feedback. I've already simmed it with three standard Miltech cannons of a middling size, which we have on record, and it works. It returns real-time status data in QW format, which can be read by any Gyvern-style display and analysis unit. Okay, I replied, actually impressed. That's a nice start. Gyverns are standard in the entire Azatla line of civilian-class gunnery suites, some of the Somersets, too. We have access to Gyvern-enabled AIs, she stated. For testing, of course. I've already put in an order for one, and it should be here by next week. See? Things are happening, Ejog. We could really use you. You don't want to break your contract over some minor delays, do you? My contract was with the previous incarnation of this department, Gaza. HR wants me to sign a new one, but they've been swamped and haven't been able to get me in. If I don't sign, I'm off the project. So I think I'm off. Don't get me wrong. This is a very nice interface schematic you've put together. But if the Star Jump Group, followed by the entire R&D division, is under investigation, while Hull Design and Gendis are made up of entirely new clubs of people, we're not going to be able to get any inter-sub-D exchanges going for weeks, maybe months. Then they may well dictate interface specs that invalidate all the work you just did. Your design sims well with three canon interfaces we have access to? Great. What about the thousands of others they could decide to use instead? We haven't been allowed any input on the project's requirements, so we have no idea what direction they'll go in. I doubt even they do yet. I'm not willing to put in countless hours of what amounts to busy work waiting on other people to get themselves together, only to see it all get flushed out the airlock when they finally do. There shouldn't even be a weaponry sub-department until those other clowns deliver some work. The team officers, as a group, looked at me darkly. One of them muttered something to the effect that I should shut up and start doing my job. I just waved them all away and walked off. Gaza started to follow. I could hear her quick steps behind, but they stopped after only a moment while I kept going. Seven Newellen was just coming out of the freshers when I stalked by. Hey, where are you going? she asked brightly. The woman's tone hooked me, and I turned. She was grinning now, and much more composed. Someone got good news, I replied with surprise. Care to share? 
I just decided not to let the day get ahead of me. I grunted and waved at R&D General as a whole. There won't be enough to this day to make it worth the effort. I signed out at the entrance to the department, caught a tram, and went to buy a coffee I had no intention of drinking. If I was quitting R&D, that information needed to be passed along. When I set the empty cup down in its dark little nook, a dozen team soldiers, all armored, huge and brandishing weapons, dashed at me from every direction, shouting, screaming, ordering me to show my hands, to hit the deck, to lie down, now! Those all sounded like very good ideas, and I complied, smiling the whole time, because it was finally over. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.